BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. But first, we start with this groundbreaking deal now with family doctors in British Columbia being offered a significant raise here under the province's new compensation model to address the shortage of family doctors in the province. Approximately a million British Columbians without a family doctor right now. i got Dr. Rita McCracken standing by from UBC. Have a listen to Dr. Ramnik Dosanj here first, president of the doctors of BC on this deal. Here's what she had to say about it yesterday. I think an immediate sigh of relief, which I'm hearing from many of my colleagues. Addressing the overhead and the rising cost of business is a major one in this new payment model. Okay, let's discuss it now with my guest, Rita McCracken. Dr. McCracken is a family doctor, assistant professor at UBC. Very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Dr. McCracken, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Okay, let's talk about this deal. And I guess the bottom line here is what family doctors get a significant raise out of this. Is that the bottom line on it? Yeah, so the family doctors who are uh, doing the work that we need people to keep doing and we need more of them to do, uh, they're going to get a raise for. So that's particularly, you know, if, if you're, you go see a family doctor in the community, um, somebody who you see over uh, weeks, months, and years, that's the kind of work that this deal is uh, going to be celebrating and paying more. Right. So you take a look at some of the numbers here released by government yesterday that a full-time family doctor kind of average right now collecting around $250,000 under the existing fee-for-service model. That would rise to about $385,000. So that's obviously a lot. So for people who hear these numbers and say, wait a sec, 250000 that sounds like that sounds like a lot of money. Why can't you make a go of it on that? I mean, you've got to pay your overhead out of that, though, right? Yeah. So right now, uh, the vast majority of uh, primary care services or family doctor access in British Columbia is set up as having family doctors be small business owners. And so that's this. uh, Imagine if uh, public education was being offered where we asked teachers to set up their own school, hire their own staff, get their own IT, uh, you know, manage their long term lease that kind of stuff. So that's what we've been doing for family doctors. And so everybody who runs a business knows that the cost of doing business has dramatically shifted. Also, the complexity of doing business has really changed, especially with the pandemic, especially in healthcare. And so we've been asking these family doctors to not only sit with our patients when they're having um, problems with their health or planning for the health of their future. We've also been asking them to run extremely expensive businesses that are uh, getting more and more tricky to run. Let's have a listen to the health minister here and what he had to say yesterday. So this is Adrian Dix talking about this new compensation deal for family doctors. Let's have a listen and I'll get your thoughts. This payment model for family doctors will help protect and strengthen BC's healthcare system by helping to attract new family doctors and retain existing doctors. In your experience, Rita, are a lot of family doctors just getting out of the practice under the current system? 
Yeah, well, some of the research that um, I have been doing has shown me that uh, over the last several decades, family doctors have been doing less of this community-based longitudinal care, and they've been choosing to work in environments uh, like in hospitals or in focused practices. And the reasons that we've been able to identify for that happening is because uh, they don't have to run their own business. They get to work in a team. They get to do really human things like take a vacation or add a child to their family or, in some cases, get sick. And they don't have to worry about their entire business shutting down if they do one of those human things. So we have been seeing an increasing proportion of people choosing to work in that method. I have a few concerns about this new deal as it's been announced Mm. because we are still relying on the physicians to run their own business. So we certainly have made it more lucrative. Um, Those people who are interested in running their own business, I think this is really going to help them um, stay in business. I'm not so sure about how many new uh, family doctors we're going to be able to attract with this deal. Okay, that's a very interesting thought. Like, so for running their own business, like that model will kind of continue, I guess, under the system. But what is the alternative? Like government just putting them on salary or something? Well, if I'm again, go back to public schools. So uh, what do you need? Do you how reasonable is it that we would just ask teachers, hey, please go set up a school, do it in a community where they don't have a school and make sure that you only attract students who don't already have access to a school. That is a level of organizational sophistication that seems unreasonable to be transferring to individuals. It would seem much more reasonable, like we see with public education, that there should be a community-level organization. There's municipal and provincial government uh, organization, and uh, parents are allowed to have their voices. So right now in healthcare in British Columbia, really the only people who have voices are doctors and the government. And I think we need to be broadening that discussion so that we can create solutions that are going to work for communities, not just pay doctors more. Speaking to Dr. Rita McCracken from UBC, and we're talking about the new compensation deal for family doctors unveiled by the BC government yesterday. The opposition health critic also has some questions about how this is going to work. Let's listen to what she had to say and get your thoughts. So this is Liberal MLA Shirley Bond speaking yesterday. I am relieved that there is a step in the right direction, uh, but again, we want to see more detail, timelines, metrics, and measurement. Okay, what about that thought that she would like, how are they going to, how are they going to measure this? How are they going to make, find out if it's working? What would be the deliverables on this? Do you have any thoughts on that? Absolutely, yeah. I have to agree with um, MLA Bond on this, that we absolutely need to have an evaluation system. $718 million have been dedicated to this new deal for doctors, and we need to make sure that it is the outcome that we're looking for. Do people have better Mm -hmm. access to the primary care that they need? And so that's going to mean fewer people who don't have a family doctor and those people who do have a family doctor that they're able to get access in a timely and meaningful way so they don't have to go to an urgent care center and they don't have to go to emergency. Right, and you briefly touched on this earlier about the possibility of attracting doctors from out of the province to come here to British Columbia. This is something that the government touted yesterday, saying we think this will be 
an attractive proposition. You could have doctors from elsewhere in the country. I'm, I'm going to BC to be a family doctor, which would be great. But do you think that you're, you sound a little doubtful that this could attract a lot of new new doctors to the province? Yeah, it's it's not only new doctors, it's new doctors who want to run a business. Right. And unfortunately, the research that we've done tells us that that proportion of people is really diminishing over time. Um, so right now, I will, I will comment that we do have a net influx of doctors. Uh, British Columbia is one of the only provinces in Canada that continues to have more doctors move from other provinces than anywhere else. But the job of providing that community-based longitudinal primary care where you have to run your own business is not as attractive as many of the other jobs that family doctors can take. All right. Thanks for coming on today with your thoughts on it. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. We continue talking about this paid deal for BC family doctors getting a significant raise here up from an average of around 250000 a year to 385000 for a full-time family doctor. Now remember, they have to pay their overheads out of that. So they pay their assistants, they pay their staff, they pay their office rent. So that is the deal with, uh, with uh, family doctors. Will it make a difference Approximately 1 million British Columbians don't have a family doctor. Got Camille Curry standing by to talk about it. Let's have another listen to Shirley Bond here, the liberal health care critic, uh, wondering if this will make a difference. Here's what she said yesterday. I certainly will be looking for uh, the capacity side of this. Does it give people a way to find out where they can be attached to a family physician? Yeah, I think we need to see some measurables and outcomes here for sure. More people get family doctors out of this. That's great. Let's discuss with Camille Curry now, founder and organizer of BC Healthcare Matters. This was the campaign for family doctors in British Columbia. You may have seen their lawn signs around town where you live. Uh, and I think this uh, campaign had a big effect in BC. Camille, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, so it's great to have you because I think the campaign that you ran here was very effective in, in keeping this issue front and center and putting pressure on government. So I think you definitely can take some credit for what we saw yesterday. What did you think about the deal that was announced by government? Yeah, so, well, it was something. I think it probably caught a lot of us almost a little off guard because we didn't know what would be coming out. And um, I have to say, I, I did breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief yesterday um, and felt a bit of hopefulness that has not been there for the last 10 months since I started um, our campaign with BC Healthcare Matters. So it was... Um, it was something that is so innovative, right? And it's something new. It's not something we can compare to other provinces. Um, and I think it's got a lot of details that still need to be worked out. That's for sure. And so we'll all be kind of waiting on pins and needles to see it get ironed out. But I really do feel hopeful. I feel hopeful about what it's brought to the table right now. What sort of details are you looking for? Yeah, so, I mean, the number one thing is, like, you will have, like, heard Shirley Bond raise, and, like, I'm sure we will continue to hear others as well as our group continue to raise, is that we want to make sure that this is still a step that gets us on the path to connecting more BC residents with a family doctor, because that is what's really important right now, having over a million, uh, over a million um, residents in our population without a family doctor. My hope is that I do see this as the first step step to us getting to connecting more individuals with family doctors, but I'll be watching extremely closely to see if um, the path does take us there. 
Yeah, I think the proof will be in the the proverbial pudding here. Like, let's see some <laughs> some results here as this thing kicks in. Let's take a phone call on the open line. Dev in Vancouver. Hi, Dev. What do you think? Hi. So my doctor explained to me that this boils down to any patient that goes to see them, they're only allowed to vi- to bill them for that one issue. So if I have more than one issue affecting me, I have to make another appointment and go back. So does this new plan mean that if a patient goes to see a doctor and they have three or four different issues, that the doctor will get paid for those three or four different issues? Okay, that's a good question, Camille. I've I've heard similar complaints, as I'm sure you have. Your thoughts? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. This is honestly the number one question that came to my mind when I heard this, too. And so from my impression, having, you know, listened to Minister Dix and Dr. Dasan explain, um, and also getting some feedback from family physicians, I do believe that this is a step in the direction to addressing that, because we have heard that. People cannot just continue to triage themselves and decide what is the most critical thing I'm facing today because I can only talk to them about one thing. And the reason I think that this helps address that problem is because the doctors will now be compensated for not only seeing the patient, but also for their time. And so that was the piece that's been missing for so long. If somebody needs to speak to them for a little bit longer, if more steps need to be taken after the fact to push forward referrals or write prescriptions or whatever it may be, they can now be compensated compensated for that time. So that's a huge win on the doctor's side, but I also see it as a huge win for the patients because it is ridiculous. We cannot continue to be held to the one-issue one rule because it also doesn't ensure the best health outcomes. Um, people can make mistakes in what they triage themselves to decide to talk about that day. So my understanding is that this really will help address that because of the fact that they will receive time compensation as well as the per-visit compensation. Camille, congratulations with, on your success with this campaign. I, I think it really, it really made a difference here, and I appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Mike, and I agree. I hope that people continue to see advocacy at work like this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
Let's talk about a couple of new taxes coming at you here in British Columbia. The B.C. government introducing a new hotel and short-term accommodation tax. So this would be like on hotel stays, Airbnb stays up to 2.5%. And the money would be used to pay for hosting major tourism events like the World Cup coming to Vancouver. Also, the new used car tax uh, taking another step forward here in B.C. We'll explain that one to you here, too. Peter Millibar is my guest, Liberal MLA, Kamloops North Thompson. Peter, thank you for coming on today. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay, you bet. Let's start with this hotel tax now. Where did this come from? Yeah, well, it's one thing we'll be in the finance critic when the NDP's in government. You certainly have a lot of taxes to track, uh, um, you know, this is this is one. My my understanding is that Vancouver or other cities that uh, host major events were looking for another avenue to to help fund when when major international or national events are are coming to their area. So, I think the real worry will be the devil in the detail on this one in terms of you know, how much revenue are they expecting to generate from it? What would be the timelines uh, for an event like a FIFA event uh, coming in 2026 that this would actually be in place for? the geographic area that it would uh, qualify in, uh, those types of things. And then, uh, you know, being from Kamloops, we're, we're hosting the Scotties, we're hosting the Memorial Cup this spring. Um, uh, you know, would those types of events qualify as well? So a lot of unanswered questions that hopefully uh, the minister can provide some detail on as we why, uh, the bill proceeds through the House. Why would the, the events you just mentioned in Kamloops there, why would they, why would they not qualify? Well, we're not sure yet, and that's the thing. So we've only had uh, the brief introduction of the bill by the minister where she referenced uh, international and national uh, significant events. Uh, so trying to find out what that process will be for Cabinet to agree to an actual event or not. Uh, a lot of this bill is, is left to regulation. Um, you know, I think the, the most uh, interesting thing about this, though, is that here you have a cabinet that unilaterally decided without consulting with Indigenous groups to, to kill their Olympic bid, the Indigenous-led Olympic bid, uh, because of concerns around uh, revenues and, and who would pay and, and uh, exposure. Um, yet at the same time, they knew full well they were bringing forward a bill two days later um, yeah. that actually has revenue generation in it. So if it's good enough to help pay for the FIFA event, um, surely, when you think of the time frame that the Olympics and Paralympics would be taking place, and, and the fact it would have been in Sun Peaks and Kamloops and Whistler and Vancouver, uh, the broad swath of areas that you could be collecting this tax on to help cover that cost, um, I think they have a lot of explaining to do as to yeah. why that wasn't considered in the revenue projections. Yeah, the, the uh, timing is a bit curious. Let's listen to Tourism Minister Lisa Baer here. Now, here she is last week explaining why the government was pulling out of the bid to host the Winter Olympic Games. Here's what she had to say. I'll get your thoughts. Government had to take a look at that bid and weigh it, uh, its costs, its risks, its potential benefits against government priorities like health care, like public safety, like, uh, um, you know, investing in the cost of living. That's the, tour the tourism minister there. Okay, so she says we can't afford the Olympics, but then a few days later they introduce a new tax to pay for the World Cup. Now, let's be clear, though. The Olympics are a heck of a lot more expensive than the World Cup. And so right, can, Peter? So we don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and we don't know what the revenue projections are for this tax. Um, but this tax, you would think for the Olympics, because it was going to be over a much larger geographic area of this province, would have that many more 
uh, city is able to to charge it and collect it. Um, it's it's for a much longer time frame than five World Cup games. I mean, you think of when an Olympic starts to the fine it finally ends. Once you get through the Paralympic side of the uh, the events, um, it's a very long uh, time frame in a calendar. So uh, again, just a lot of unanswered questions from this well, government as to why um, why if they're going to collect uh, this extra tax off of tourism, um, they wouldn't have uh, considered that and factored that into the Olympic bid. Well, let's just be clear here, though. You're you're not saying that we sh- the province should have put billi- a billion bucks into a- the Olympics, or are you? Like, what's the liberal position on this? Well, the, the, there's two things with the Olympic bid. First off, the disrespect shown to to the indigenous communities, where you have uh, Premier Horgan indicating to them that they should really go for it, and and he was excited about the opportunity. And then we have the incoming Premier designate and and cabinet that essentially kill it without even. Uh, having the courtesy of a meeting with with the Indigenous community. So that's a problem to begin with. Um, But we've heard very conflicting numbers. We've heard that from the Indigenous communities as well. The government seems to have gone to a maximum value um, without actually properly accounting for things like uh, the potential that this tax would do to offset the cost. So we don't actually Mm. know what the final dollar figure would have been uh, exposure-wise from the province um, because, uh, frankly, they've lacked transparency all the way through this, both with the general public but with Indigenous groups as well. Right. So you're saying that it was just they jumped the gun in cancelling it. They should have studied it some more. And maybe, and, and depending on that, maybe they should have gone ahead with it. Is that what, is that what your, is well, that your bottom line? They should have studied it. They should have studied it some more. And certainly, yeah. um, when they cancel it, and then three days later they come forward with a with a new tax that's meant to help fund things like an Olympics or a FIFA World Cup event, um, it really does make you scratch your head about what the true exposure that government would be underwriting was. Uh, for the games, especially when uh, there was a way to bring in uh, revenue from uh, the tourists that would be coming here for the event itself. Right. Okay. Speaking to Liberal MLA Peter Millibart, let me ask you about another tax. We've covered this on previous shows. This is the used car sales tax in British Columbia and, and the way it will be calculated now. So under the previous system, you know, you go and buy a used car, you pay the sales tax based on the price that you pay for the vehicle. Under the system going forward, you would pay the tax on the the government's estimated value of the ta- of the vehicle. And the reason the government says they're doing this is because people were cheating the tax man. They were reporting a, a lower price than they actually paid to government, so they would pay less tax. So the government said, we want to stop this cheating. And I, I know you got some strong opinions on this. Let me play. Let me play a clip here for you for your thoughts. This is NDP MLA Brenda Bailey. This is this is her describing why the government's doing this. I'll get your thoughts. This is simply a question of closing uh, some behavior, closing a loophole on behavior that we want to curb because it's frankly it's tax evasion. So to to suggest that this is a new tax is quite a stretch. Um, you know, and I wonder if the other side is suggesting that tax evasion is something that they support. That would surprise me greatly. Um, perhaps they just misunderstand what it is. I, certainly not that we think everyone's a criminal. That's a ridiculous thing to state. Okay, Peter Millibar, your thoughts. You've taken a few cracks at the Liberals there in, in that debate. Go ahead. 
Well, yesterday I introduced a, a private member's bill that would remove uh, the PSD for any used car uh, under $20,000 in value with over wow. 6,000 kilometers on it. Um, mm. And that would be whether it's a car lot sale or, or a private sale. And, and that would be in line with what uh, the rules now are for electric vehicles that are used. So, um, unfortunately, the government has been uh, hesitant to take us up on this offer of, of uh, some common sense tax changes. But, um, you know, the reality is, and we're seeing it, it took effect in October, uh, as MLAs were getting emails from people repeatedly now, um, they are being told that they're lying. Uh, they go in and, and they've paid $2,000 for a vehicle. They're being told the vehicle's really worth $9,000. Uh, they have to then try to figure out how to get somebody to come appraise it if they can. Um, of course, the vehicle's not insured, so it can't be moved. The appraiser has to go to where the vehicle is. Uh, those appraisals are costing people $250, $300 to get done, uh, to go back and prove to ICBC that, in fact, the vehicle is worth what they said they paid for it. Um, because ICBC literally is just working off of a, uh, a computer program that says, well, this is what we think the car should be worth. It doesn't take into account the mechanical uh, nature of it or body work or things of that nature. And they flat out refuse to believe people when they tell them that. Right. So, okay. So um, you don't, you don't think there's, a, you don't think there's cheating or tax evasion going on. Like the government says, like people would maybe pay, maybe they would pay uh, $10,000 for a used vehicle and then tell ICBC, oh, I only paid 5,000 for it and then get pay half the tax. That's what the government you know, says is going on. That's what the government says is going on. Yeah. Uh, the government already has the ability, when you file those ICBC papers and, and do your transfer, uh, they already have the ability to audit those sales. They have the ability to, if they flag them, uh, to phone the seller, to phone the purchaser, see if their stories match up or not, to go and look okay. at the car if they want. Um, they didn't need to change the law by telling everybody that you're, you're committing tax evasion and fraud um, when they already had a check and balance in place that they just chose to not uh, use. So that's why we're saying, and with the private member's bill, let's just remove the tax completely on lower-cost vehicles at a time of high inflation to give people, working-class people in this province, a break who are simply trying to find an affordable okay. second-hand vehicle to get around with. Talking taxes with Liberal MLA Peter Millibar here. We have a full phone board. Laura in Richmond. Hi, Laura, go ahead. Hi, how's it going? It's going good. Go Can ahead. Can you hear me? Yes. Hello? Go ahead. Yeah, can you hear me? Go ahead. No? I guess you can't hear me. Let's go to Derek in Nanaimo. Hi, Derek. Hi, how you doing? I'm good. Go ahead. Hey, two quick comments. One is um, taxes in general, like the hotel tax for events. Unless yeah. there's something special going on, pretty much all taxes go into general revenue, and governments just use it for their own little pet peeve projects. So saying that a hotel tax is going to go and support other events, unless this one's different, it's just not true. And the, the car tax, I've actually done the calculations. We tried buying a used car for my son so he could get employment, just a cheap one. Yeah. And on that particular car, we did the calculations, and we'll actually be paying more provincial sales tax than the car's actually worth over its <laughs> lifetime. Between sales tax and provincial tax, over the lifetime sales of that car three or four times, you're paying more tax than the car's worth. It's Thank you. Governments are out of control. Thank and you, Derek. need to stop taking our money. Thanks a lot. Like, I've heard that argument, Peter, that why do you keep charging taxes over and over every time a vehicle is, is sold? Your thoughts? 
Yeah, so so two things. Uh, my understanding is this new hotel tax would go back to the municipality to try to help offset the cost municipalities incur for putting on the event. Right. Um, so hopefully it is structured differently because I agree with the caller. Uh, in terms of the car tax, and that's why we've set it at the 20000 it's the same as what the, the NDP have brought in for electric vehicles. We're just saying regardless of what uh, technology is the propulsion device for the vehicle, um, you should be able to to buy something that's reasonably priced, that's used, uh, has likely been sold uh, two or three times already uh, over its lifetime and has triggered tax every single time it was over the $20,000 sale price. Um, I think the, the taxpayer has paid enough on that particular vehicle um, and, and it should be waived uh, for those lower cost vehicles to, to try to give people a safe, reliable options that are affordable. Okay, that's a very interesting idea. Cam and Langley. Hi, Cam, go ahead. Hey, Mike. Uh, I agree with your uh, panel guest's input regarding, you know, the safeguards already being in place to verify, you know, sale and purchase price between the buyer and seller, et cetera. And, and the last caller, you know, I'm, I'm in the process right now of trying to close a deal on a 2009 vehicle. I believe I'd be the third owner, so third time paying tax on it. And I, I pride myself on being a bit of a savvy shopper. You know, I, I took quite a while uh, scoping the market, looking for something that w- would come in at a, you know, exceptional value, needing a bit of repairs, etc. There's an yeah. Alberta vehicle I'm going to have to uh, get put through BC uh, inspection before I can insure it. And, uh, you know, I, I looked for something that was, again, under market value. I can put a little bit of repairs in. And, and, you know, come out ahead. But this, this new tax they uh, applied just in the back end of October, you know, yeah. my, my vehicle that I'm getting for four to $5,000, which, uh, you know, under normal circumstances in top condition might be worth 10, clearly isn't. Mm. And the only way I can satisfy ICDC apparently is to track down and find <clears> an appraiser for, you know, just more regulation and, uh, you know, the, the more or less accusation that thank you. anyone... Thank you. Thank you, Cam, just in the interest of time stepping in here. But thank you for a great call because I think you summed up very well how people, a lot of people feel about this tax because you describe yourself as a savvy shopper. Well, the government is going, I don't care how savvy you are. We want our money. We want our tax money. Well, so, I mean, so Peter, Peter, let me, so let's say, let's say that example, like this is the one I keep hearing about too, right? Let's say I am a savvy shopper. Or I'm a good, I'm a good bargain, a, a bargain at good at bargaining and I get a good deal on a vehicle. Why should I be penalized for that? Your thoughts? Well, the government doesn't uh, not only think you're not a savvy shopper, they think you're actually a tax evader. Uh, because that's their default is that you're somehow trying to cheat the system and cheat them out of what they feel that they're owed and due for taxes. Um, you know, the reality is that, as everyone has been pointing out, by the time a, a used vehicle gets to being worth $20,000 or less, and the vast majority that we're talking about would probably be even under $10,000, how many times has that vehicle been bought and sold over its lifetime to get down yeah. to those lower values? Um, you know, the, the government has collected more than enough tax offered the sale of that vehicle up to that point of its life. Um, it, it just simply would... would streamline things it would give people a little bit of extra money that uh, you know if they're buying a a lower cost vehicle they probably don't have a lot of money um in sitting in the bank to begin with so i pay an extra few hundred dollars to simply uh go to the tax payer 
or tax man, uh, as you're trying to get insurance on the vehicle, is just okay. another big hit to people. Peter, thank you for coming on today. Great, thank you. All right, welcome back. My next guest is David Eby, the next Premier of British Columbia, set to be sworn in on November 18th, so a little over two weeks from now. I'm pleased he could make some time for us today. Premier-designate, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it a lot. Let's talk about some of the many challenges you're facing here as you take office. And let's start with the violent crime and chronic repeat offenders issue, which we've covered closely here on the show. The, the Liberal opposition really zeroing in on on this and attacking you on it. Let me give you an example of it. So this is Liberal MLA Eleanor Sturko in the legislature last week going on about uh, chronic repeat offenders. Let's have a listen and I'll get your thoughts. <clears throat> Justin Collins a prolific offender with over 421 police files, released with the agreement of Crown prosecutors on charges that included assaulting a police officer. When will the NDP scrap the incoming soft-on-crime premier's catch-and-release system and start keeping violent, prolific offenders in jail? Okay, I think pointing out that she's a former police officer herself there. David Eby, what do you say to her? Uh, a really serious issue around public safety in our province and it's a concern when people lose confidence in the criminal justice system uh this is not just an issue in bc mike this is an issue that is faced across canada and was the core focus of ministers of justice uh, from across the country and discussions with the federal government about changes they've made to the law that our prosecutors have to work with Uh, If we're going to respond to this issue at a provincial level, and we have to, it's one of my key priority areas in the first 100 days, and you're going to see action from me and from our government on this. Uh, If if we're going to do it, we need to attack uh, the the core issues of mental health and addiction that feed into this. The feelings of lack of safety that people have when their sidewalks are covered with tents uh, uh, in, in parts of our city in Vancouver. Uh, as well as uh, this uh, this confidence that people need to have in our criminal justice system. Okay, what do you intend to do specifically about it? Will you issue directives to Crown to keep these chronic prolific offenders locked up? Yeah, all, all of the tools are on the table. Uh, Mike, we can't direct Crown to not follow the federal criminal law, which is what we've been talking to the federal government about, but if there's an opportunity there, we will do it. Uh, But more than that, I mean, I think British Columbians know uh, that at the core of this issue, in many cases, are issues of mental health and addiction uh, and uh, and intervening earlier when someone is in crisis, as opposed to uh, later on uh, when the incident has already happened, because that's when prosecutors work. It's after the crime has happened. We want to prevent the crime from happening. So that'll be a key focus as well. Let me play another clip here for you that's gotten a lot of attention here in the last week or so. And this is Doug Lepard, who is the co-author of a report the government commissioned on this issue, Chronic Prolific Repeat Offenders. And here he is speaking to a panel, crime panel, put on by the Vancouver Sun. He says something very surprising here about when he had personally suggested that the Crown kind of get tougher on these chronic offenders, and he got some pushback on it. Let's have a listen and get your thoughts. Doug Lepard here. But I have to tell you the response that we got, at least from the representatives of Crown, when we suggested that, you know, maybe now that the pandemic were at the other end, that you could be a little more assertive at seeking detention for the most incorrigible offenders who breach their conditions over and over and over again. And I have to say we got pushback on that about whether that was appropriate. 
David Eby, does that concern you to hear a former police chief like that saying that they got pushback about keeping these chronic offenders in jail? Yeah, I've, I've had a couple of good meetings with Doug to discuss uh, his work on the report, uh, Amanda Butler's work. And I think this underlines uh, why I brought Doug in uh, is because he's independent, um, because he's able to share that perspective and get to the bottom of these issues. That's exactly why I hired him and Amanda Butler to do this work. And so their feedback, which was very frank and full in their report, is underlining and directing our government response to this issue. Uh, sometimes when you have a problem like this, uh, the core is to bring people in, even when they're going to be critical, uh, so that you right. can know exactly what's going on and address the issues. Right. And, and it, do you believe that one of the issues here is that the Crown apparently being resistant to this idea of keeping people in jail? Like, you know, the, the liberal MLA, the clip we played at first there was talking about a guy who's had like 400 police files in a, in a very short time. And he keeps being released, reoffending, arrested, released again, just uh, endlessly. Why yeah, wouldn't it, the, why would not the Crown take a tougher stand on that? I don't know the specifics of that file, Mike, but I do know that the, one of the core issues for Crown is that they're working within a context, a changed context. So the federal criminal code uh, established by the federal parliament, that this was a huge concern across the country, that provinces across Canada facing similar issues raise this issue with the federal government. They're working with the federal law. And so provincially, we, I mean, I've dealt with the federal government on money laundering, a bunch of other issues. They've been frustrating, frankly, uh, to get action from. So we can't wait for them. But we do have to work within their legal framework. So you'll see us acting aggressively within the areas that we can and pushing the federal government on law reform uh, where we need it. Speaking of David Eby, British Columbia's next premier, a lot of these problems, of course, flowing from homelessness, drug addiction, untreated mental illness on the streets of Vancouver. You've talked about this in the past how that we need a new way going forward. Can you t- can you expand a little bit about that? Like you've talked about, you know, that maybe a profound intervention is required here in, in your words. What do you mean by that? Well, when I look at the downtown east side, and it's not just the downtown east side, it's, the, it's in downtown Terrace and Trail. Uh, these issues really um, feel beyond the capacity of the local government to deal with on their own. They need help. Uh, and uh, local residents need support beyond just what their local government can provide. So the provincial government is going to have to step in and bottom line the response. And one of the things I've learned is that these issues may look very similar in different communities, but the sources of the problem may be quite different. And so it's vital for us to be partners with the local government uh, and to bring in the federal government uh, to address these issues. So downtown Eastside, for example, uh, we're going to have to bottom line bringing all the key people to the table, the police, uh, the business leaders, people from the downtown east side uh, community, people from Chinatown, uh, and uh, working together to address this really serious issue. And the province can bottom line it uh, and bring those interventions. We have the capacity to intervene and address these issues. I'm frankly, uh, Mike, as, as disturbing and challenging as this issue is for people who live in communities, I'm excited to get to work on this because I think we can show results for people in a really meaningful way that they're going to see in their communities and, and feel better about what's happening. Yeah, you've talked you've talked in some frank terms in the past about how how you feel about seeing people with untreated mental illness on the streets, and and I I agree with you on that. I think something more needs to be done. Would you be open to some sort of system of expanded involuntary care where people who are obviously sick and need help on the streets are maybe put put into an institution? Like there are people calling for the reopening of Riverview, a large mental health institution in British Columbia. Would you be open to that? 
Yeah, I think a lot of people, and myself included, look back at the closure of Riverview and the lack of supports that were put into the community as a key turning point in both the downtown east side and just how mental health and addiction issues are seen in our communities. And I talked to a lot of physicians in emergency rooms and others, uh, first responders who are frustrated with picking up the same people again and again who are in crisis. I know we can do better. Uh, British Columbians expect us to do better when we have a healthcare crisis. Having an ambulance pick up the same person two or three times a day is not right. sustainable. And so um, I'm excited about the possibility that we can do things differently. The challenge with these things, of course, is that there will be time involved to get these supports in place. Uh, and, uh, and the key is going to be intervening for the people who are the sickest, who are in the greatest distress uh, and, uh, and are consuming the most resources. I had a, a, a public inquiry I was involved in, the death of Frank Paul. Frank Paul, he probably cost the, the public about a million dollars a year to maintain him on the streets. Uh, he was a, a chronic alcoholic who drank rice wine, and, uh, and there are a lot of Frank Pauls out there. Uh, we can do better for them. We can save money for taxpayers, and communities can be safer. So that means you would not rule out reopening Riverview. Is that correct? Well, we, yeah, we're not going to reopen a, a facility from the 1950s, a sort of uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of thing, but we can absolutely have uh, dignified, high-quality mental health services for people uh, that are in distress. A physician that's assessing someone in a hospital or in a prison shouldn't be making a decision based on whether or not there's something good out there for that person to get treatment. They should make the decision, does this person need the treatment? And, and if they do, then they can make that decision, which is a difficult decision, but it should be based on the patient in front of them, not whether or not the service is available. Speaking to incoming Premier David Eby, let's let's transition to another topic here that is a high priority for you, affordable housing. This is one of the the main components of your campaign for this job. You've outlined a, a, an ambitious plan for affordable housing, including densifying in neighborhoods right now that are single-family zoned occupancy, allowing three homes to be built on a single-family lot. There's been a lot of discussion about this idea and others you put forward, one of them on on the densification is would you have the necessary services in place, whether it's parking or sewage, in order to support that densification? What do you say to people who are worried about it? Well, I think that there's a, a real need for the provincial government to provide supports to fast-growing communities. When I hear people express concern about additional housing, it's usually about strain on community centres, on schools, traffic, uh, hospitals. So we're going to have to provide those supports uh, in communities so that people see the benefits of that growth. That means those cities that are approving the housing that we need, that we get them the resources so that people can enjoy a good community, you know, so that there's a place for them to go and swim with their kids, for, that they're not sitting in traffic all day. I mean, th- this is what will help people support the growth we need. I understand the federal government recently increased their immigration target, which we uh, certainly need in British Columbia to fill some of these key roles. Uh, that employers are trying to hire for. Uh, but if we're going to see more and more people coming to BC, we're going to need more homes. And, and the key, to my mind, to getting people to support that growth is providing the amenities, the, the infrastructure, so that their lives get better with growth, not the other way around. David Eby, last question here for you. I'm just looking at an email I received this morning from autism advocates in, in British Columbia. As, as I'm sure you're aware, there's a major campaign in BC going on to preserve the current autism funding model in the province and and not claw back away from it. What can you say to these advocates? They've been relentless here on the government saying, don't do this to us. Keep the current autism funding in place. Can you give them any reassurance on that? 
Well, I mean, parents of kids with disabilities of all kinds and, uh, and autism included, um, I am on their side and I am excited about delivering support for them. Uh, as a, you know, as a parent myself with a couple of young kids, I don't know how families do it when they face the additional challenge of a, a kid with a profound disability. And adding strain and stress to those families uh, is, is not something that, uh, that I want to do. Um, so I really look forward to working not just with the autism community, but with uh, all different uh, advocates and parents uh, who have kids with disabilities about how we can improve services for them. Okay, so for people who are, for parents of autistic kids who are listening to this right now and are worried about their funding being clawed back, are, are you saying that they should stop worrying or is that still on the table? Meetings with those advocates are high on my list after being sworn in, and I really look forward to those conversations, Mike. Okay. All right. Well, we're following it closely. I appreciate your time today. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, you bet, Mike. Thanks for having me.